I mean, any, any big risk takers out there? No? Not a lot? I see a lot of heads shaking no. Not a lot of big risk takers. What about big decisions? What about anyone like making big, high-value, serious, weighty decisions where everything can go wrong? Anyone like that? Enjoy those moments? No? No, I didn't think so. I didn't think so. I don't like it either. Hey, but it's funny how God puts us in those places all the time, isn't it? Isn't it interesting how God has no problem at all posturing us in those moments where we have to make heavy, big, grave decisions, risky ones even, where anything can go wrong. And some people are really gifted at that too, aren't they? Have you ever seen a person that's gifted in making those big executive risky decisions? I'm not one of them. I only make a risky decision if I know everything's going to go well for me. (laughs) If that makes any sense at all. Um, The pastor that I used to work with for over a decade, he was the total opposite of me. And he was a big risk taker, always taking risks. And he would cream me every time we played poker together. Because I just can't bluff. Because bluffing says I, I have something when I don't have it. But you're taking a risk every time you bluff. And I was just too scared to take risks and he knew it and he would always push me to the edge and he'd always win my money right now you know how i play poker now i can't play poker with any of you guys see what i just did he always said luke would have to have three jacks in his hand in order to bluff you know he said that what that means in poker world is is you have to have a really good hand to act like you don't have a really good hand which means he's calling me a chicken so there you have it i'm not a good poker player But not all of our decisions are easy to make, are they? They're hard. Some of you have some really hard decisions. So the theme today, what I'm kind of wanting to get at through the text, what Ruth does really well for us in this third chapter, is it targets in on weighty decisions, one with a lot of heat to it, a lot of risk to it. Um, Hey, Chase, is it possible to take the ring out? I don't know if y'all could hear that. It's right in my ear. It might not be possible. Let me ask you a couple questions. And maybe they're questions that you've asked yourself, maybe not. When is taking a risk the most responsible thing you can do? Have you ever thought about that? What does a responsible risk look like? What does that even look like to do that? What does it look like to take a big risk for God's glory and not your own? What does that look like? What happens when you fail? Anyone make any bad decisions out there? Anyone really gamble and roll the dice and just not come out well? How do you see God when that happens? How do you think God sees you when that happens? Who is in control? Was God in control? Were you in control? Did you not wait on God? Did you not move fast enough? I mean, how do you look at those situations? And when is not taking a risk actually being lazy or fearful or slothful? I mean, some of you right now have some very big decisions you have to make. I mean, I've talked with many of you, with some of you I've spoken with very specifically on big decisions, even risky ones that you have to take right now. And listen, if that's you, I'm with you. I have some big decisions to make. We have some risks we have to take. There's no way this will ever be a healthy church if we do not take some measured risks, if we do not really make some big decisions and stick to it. You can't be a healthy church without doing that. 
That's always been one of the things that I, I focus on a lot is taking big, healthy risks for this church. So I'm with you, and I'm scared too, just like a lot of you are. So where we find ourselves today in this text, and I'll be honest with you, this text in Ruth 3 is a little bit tricky. All right? I'm going to do the best I can to unpack it. Feel free to ask questions. We'll have a number up on the screen. You can text in your questions. But the common question that we're going to come across in this tricky text is where do the hands of God and the hands of man meet when it comes to making big decisions? Where do we collide? I mean, if God is moving and maneuvering mankind and designing history, if He's the one weaving a story, do your decisions even matter? Have you ever thought about that? Some of you have. You've wrestled with this, right? Are we really making decisions if it's God controlling everything around us? Do your decisions have any significance, any value, any dignity to them? I mean, it's not just a question for dorks, is it? It's not. Who controls things? Does God control your decisions or do you control your decisions? Ruth, Ruth has been a good story for us. A story of big risks, of big love, of big drama, big rescue. And so what I want to do real quickly, it's only going to take me like three or four minutes, is I want to recap the story of Ruth up until now. Some of you are like, are we going through Ruth? (laughs) I didn't know we were going through Ruth. We are. We're right in the middle of the book of Ruth. And some of you, you just don't know the story of Ruth very well, right? And it's a real simple story. Actually, some scholars, now this is theological and scholars away from Jesus, scholars that don't even believe in Jesus or love God, still consider Ruth to be one of the most proportionately, perfectly written stories ever. That the way it's woven and the way it climaxes and the way it settles, that even people that don't love God say probably the most perfectly written story ever has been the story of Ruth. I find that very interesting. It starts off with a guy named Elimelech, right, who moves his family from one city to another because the money's better. Any of y'all ever do something like that? Make decisions based on money, big ones? That always works out well, doesn't it? That's what he did. Moab, where he lived, or Bethlehem rather, where he had lived and grown up, is starting to look a little bit like Detroit. And Moab is looking a lot better. No famine there. So he gets his two sons and his wife, and he goes. His wife's name is Naomi. His two sons, Malon and Chilion. And now Malon, that name means painfully weak and sick. That's what his name means. Isn't that interesting? Probably not a strapping lad that one was, right? And his brother's name, Chilion, is utterly wasting away. Right? That's what his kids' names mean. Be careful, parents, <laughs> when you name your kids. I bet that house always smelled like VapoRub and cough drops and hacking and sneezing. And listen, if your name is Malon, we're happy to have you here this morning. Welcome. <laughs> if you're eating a cough drop, it's good to have you. So Elimelech, he took his wife, Naomi, and sick and sicker, his two kids, away from Bethlehem because of a famine that was there, and he moved them towards Moab. Now listen, he did this during the book of Judges, whenever Judges ruled the land. So whenever you're reading the book of Judges, actually specifically the book of, or not the book, but the story of Samson, most scholars believe this happened right when Samson was occurring. So whenever you ring about Samson, the long hair, he's really strong, just know that in the backdrop of that story. In a little town called Bethlehem is this one. They're going at the same time. This should help you set it in context with the whole general story of God and what's going on. This is happening at the same time as Samson. 
So they went to Moab, which was stupid. Um, It was really stupid because God had always told his people not to dwell with the Moabites. They were a godless people who worshipped the god of Chemosh, the idol of Chemosh. But it was here that they lived for ten years. And it was here where the young men married Moabite women, which they were commanded not to do. One of them's name was Ruth. Ruth, that name means... Um, easy to look at or pleasant to look at or not bad to look at. So I'm just saying she's probably pretty. That's what the name indicates, right? And then her sister Orpa, which means neck, um, which was a signature of beauty. Whenever you named a kid neck, that meant that they were an attractive kid. So beauty or beautiful neck or I don't understand. I've never seen a, a sexy neck before, but that's the way it was back then. And that's what they were named. And so these guys married them and I cannot figure out for the life of me as I read the story how these Sickly guys got beautiful women to be interested in them, you know? I mean, they must have had Camaros or a good personality, or they definitely had a nickname. I know that, man, because there's no way you're walking up with utterly wasting away and doing really good at the bars, you know? You got to come up with a nickname like Iceman or Striker or something like that. But it happens. They got married, and as you can guess, they all died. The guys died. Sick and Sicker was dead. Big shocker there. Elimelech was dead. And now you have a grieving mother-in-law in a foreign land during a famine who've lost all the men in her family with two daughters that are foreign that aren't even really related to her by blood. That's the situation you have. She's probably not in a real good station of life. Right? So she hears that there's bread back on the table in Bethlehem. So she does what any of us would do. I'm going to pack up and go home. That's where family is. That's where everything's familiar to me. So she does. Because she came into Moab with hands full. She's leaving with hands empty. Moab has nothing for her but pain. Any of y'all ever been in a situation like that? You enter it with hands full and a lot of excitement possibility. And before you know it, you just have scar tissue left from the beat down you took. You have pain. That's what she's going through. But because of the maternal instinct she had and the care that she had for these two daughters, she did what any of us would do and try to talk them into staying. You should stay in Moab. You're young. You're beautiful. You can just start your life over here. Find a young stud. Make babies. Do life. Get a job. Do whatever you want to do. You're young. Your whole life is before you. Orpah listened to her. But Ruth did not. That's what's going on in this story. Now, Ruth, up until this point, at some point, had become a Christian. We know that because of the statement she says, and it should be up on the screen, in uh, Ruth 1, 16 through 17. But Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth is saying, I'm going with you to your people to worship your God with your people. I'm going to go do church with you. I'm going to go home and do church with you and your people. I'm going to worship God. God had done something to her heart. She was devoted to God. This we see. Now, going with Naomi is Ruth's first big risk. That was risky. It's hitching your wagon to a lost cause. It looked bleak. Better to leverage your bets and just stay in Moab and start your life over. That would have been smarter. I mean, that's what Orpah did. And it does make sense. On paper, it's the only thing that makes sense. That would have been the easy thing. That 
would have been the simple thing. But the risky thing is to be devoted to God in a situation like that and be committed to God's people and to be committed with Him and to do something that was above what you'd even be considered obligated to do. So they go back to Bethlehem. Now listen, it's important when they get there, right? But when they got there, the city was astir. Because, hey, Naomi's back. It's been 10 years. They hadn't seen her in 10 years. But things are a little different now, right? She's poor. No men in her family. She's tired. She's sad. She's depressed. She's scarred. She's bitter. And she's got a foreign young woman with her. They're there during the time of barley harvest, the Bible says, right? That harvest isn't very long. It's between six and eight weeks, right? Real quick, it comes and it goes. The thing is, is they needed quick cash. They needed cash real fast. They needed food. They needed a place to stay. So Ruth did what many of us would do. And she said, I'm going to go get a good temp job. And she got a temp job gleaning barley, which was only going to last less than two months. So she was a gleaner. Gleaning. Gleaning is what poor people did, right? A modern-day equivalency to gleaning would be going to a soup kitchen. And not just getting something to eat for yourself, but for someone back at home as well and bringing it back. Gleaning is very simple. Jewish law back then stipulated that if you were harvesting and you dropped stuff, you weren't allowed to go back and get it. You were to leave it for those who were impoverished, whether they were a widow or orphan, it doesn't matter. If they couldn't take care of themselves, that Jewish law was to provide for these people. Right. Also, sometimes they'd leave little chunks of the field just for gleaners to harvest themselves. So that's what she did. It wasn't a real safe thing to do. Have any of y'all ever been to a, a homeless shelter or a soup kitchen? Hey, listen, sometimes stuff goes down. Because whenever you have people that are hungry and depressed and sad, and they even think for a moment that the food might run out or the grace might run out, things can get ugly really fast. They can almost not be safe, especially if you're a beautiful, young, foreign woman. It was not the safest place for her to be. But she had mouths to feed. So she went. Now, the story says that she happened upon Boaz's field. Now that's a play on words. No one happens upon anything. Because there is no coincidence. It looked from the outside that by chance she just happened upon the field of Boaz. His name means strength, by the way. But God the whole time was shifting and driving and maneuvering and pushing her into Boaz's field. And he sees her. He notices her immediately. He says, you know, who is that young thing over there harvesting? And this guy's answer him and tell him, look, she's here out of no obligation. I mean, she, she's doing this because she loves God. She took a big risk. She came here with Naomi. Surely, Boaz, you've heard of Naomi. And she is the young foreign woman that everybody is talking about. So he was smitten. He was stricken because she did for God beyond what she was obligated to do. So he provided. He did what any dude in here would do. He started to provide for her. Make sure that no one assaults her. Make sure that no one gives her a hard time. Make sure that she works the same time that I'm working on the schedule. Make sure that we give her more food. Make sure that she... I mean, he really takes care of her. And then he invites her over to eat at his table. And that's where Kevin left off last week. A little bit of a date there. A little bit of a moment, wasn't there? She's eating with him. He's taking notice of her. Providing for her. After that moment, almost two months had passed where we have no 
No way to see that they ever contacted each other again. Almost two months passed from that time to the time where we're picking it up today. Had a good date, no call back. Now what would happen if you went on a date and it seemed to go really well and two months go by and nothing? What would two days go by and nothing? No call, no text, no email. You'd think that it didn't go very well. That's what she has to believe at this point. This is where we're going to pick up our story today. Okay, that's the quickest recap I could come up with. Ruth chapter 3 verse 1, and it will be up on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? And you could put security or peace in there too. The, the, the word nuance is all three. My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Now, is not Boaz a relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Naomi's doing this mom thing here. I don't know if any of y'all have a mom like this. You know, hey, I just want you to be happy. I just want you to be happy. I just want you to find rest and everything that you've ever wanted. Have you, by the way, have you ever noticed Boaz? He's a nice young man. Boaz, he's a nice young man. I've noticed Boaz. And he has a job, you know. That's what she's doing. My mom was like that, you know. And listen, just a side note, it's okay if you're a parent to do that. I'm actually all with Naomi in this. It looks a little manipulative. Good, you know. Because when you're 20 or 19 or 21, you have no idea what you're looking for in a spouse. You think you do. But I remember, I'm like, does she like the same music as me? Is she funny? I don't even care if she's funny. Does she think I'm funny, right? Does she look good in skinny jeans? These are bad reasons to pick a future spouse. Bad. (laughs) You want parents to be involved and say, that's a stupid reason to pick a spouse. So I'm all with Naomi here. I'm cheering her on. But she says, hey, he's out at the threshing floor. The threshing floor with nice farmer's tan, rippling muscles under his t-shirt, and a job. He has a job. Did I mention that? (laughs) Ruth, he has a job. The threshing floor is a really important place for us today. And because it's all it's in, it's in a lot of passages in the scripture. So if you don't understand what it is, this should help you in other parts of the Bible as well. The threshing floor was an interesting place. It was hard-packed clay that you could stand upon real easily and usually put on an elevated hill or a small mountain, usually within sight of the ocean. Usually, not always. But in between early afternoon and early evening, a wind, a constant wind or breeze would come in from the ocean. And it allowed them to purify their crop. You see, they would get the barley or the wheat, whatever grain it was, and they would smash it and pulverize it and process it. And then with certain tools, they'd throw it up in the air, and the wind would carry away the garbage, the shaft, because it was light. But the money crop, the edible stuff would fall. And then what you end up with, if you do it enough times, is a good purified crop that you can use. That's the threshing floor. Right? That's why if you read historically outside of the Bible, a lot of times when there were battles, a lot of times what an army would do is start taking out threshing floors all around the city because it was usually outside the city gates. It's just a way of slowing down their grain production. But what it also served as is a place for guys 
to kind of work hard, sweat hard after the, a long day at work, after a long season, to kind of just relax and high-five each other, eat a big fat meal at the end of the day, drink a couple beers, hang out, watch some sports center, have some money in their pocket and celebrate. It was one of those places as well. It was a place of celebrating what God had brought as a bounty as much as it was work. Now, some scholars would even say that the hard clay surface would double as a dance floor. I doubt it, because real dudes don't dance. I'm just saying, the scholars miss that. <laughs> Unless it's your wedding or your kids' weddings, then you can dance, man, right? I'm just playing. Y'all are like, wow. Hey, wouldn't it be funny if there was a guy in here whose name was Malon, and he was a professional dancer, and he was sick? He'd be like, I'm never coming back to this church again. It's a horrible church. Verse 3. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go... Now, this listen, if this sounds sketchy and odd, it is odd, okay? But just read it. Appreciate it for what it is. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Okay, that's a little strange. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. That's bizarre. Okay? Naomi starts off saying, Ruth, take a shower. Clean yourself. Put on some perfume. All he's ever known you as is this mourning widow that's working in the field. So you've got all gritty and dirt everywhere and you smell like a dude. So wash, look good, smell good. Now, she's not telling her to look seductive. She's telling her to look attractive. But Ruth, you've got to take care of yourself. You've got wheat in your hair right now as we're talking. You know, get cleaned up and go down to the threshing floor. That's what she's saying right now. Naomi also tells her to wait until he's done hanging with the guys. Did you notice that? Why? Why something like that? Because it was an important moment. This is a serious risk. This is a heavy decision. It warrants the right timing, does it not? You can't just walk up when they're in a burping contest and do this thing that she's about to do or he's in the middle of watching the the ninth inning in a tied game. Just a dumb time to come up with their dudes around and mess with all of that. So she's saying, "Be, be smart about that. I mean, it's not real spiritual right there. It's common sense. Be smart. See, ladies, it's important when you speak to your man about stuff. You should ask for permission, actually. See, it's in the Bible. I'm totally playing with you. Every guy should look at his wife and say, Baby, you can talk to me anytime you want to talk to me. You don't need permission. Or else we'll have to do another marriage series. But I've always wanted to say that on a mic. Alright, so the moment was going to be very high in gravity. The timing was crucial. And Naomi tells her to watch for where he sleeps and to sneak up where he's lying down. And then lie down at his feet and to move his blanket while he's sleeping. (laughs) To move his blanket while he's sleeping and say, Surprise! I know I just woke you up. Here I am. Now tell me what to do. That's what we see. That's what we see. Now, the workers 
would always sleep with their head towards the grain and their feet pointed outward because no one wants funky foot grain. And they were there to protect it from thieves coming in and snatching away the crop. So I want you to picture this. Don't lose this. If you lose the risk in this, you'll lose the story. Here she is, Ruth, in the dark, looking like a Jedi, all in the corner, watching people, waiting for them to stop eating, waiting for them to stop drinking, to lay down, to go to sleep. Then, in the dead of night, sneaking like a ninja by everybody, finding the right feet to lay down by, and doing this in the, in the, in the dead of night. It says this, and goes on to say, Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Exclamation point, exclamation point. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Okay, very quickly, this is what she's doing. She's proposing that he proposes to her. She is proposing that he proposes. Spreading your wings over me, that word nuance is the word blanket as well. I've just moved your blanket. Spread your blanket over me. Spread your wings over me is is another way of saying, cover me, protect me, nurture me, look after me, marry me, virtually is what she's saying. And she calls him a redeemer. Why? Why a redeemer? Why a relative? I mean, why this guy? Right? There's a concept I'm going to introduce, but I cannot finish explaining it today. Next week I'll do a better job of finishing it up. But I do need to introduce the idea of a kinsman redeemer or a relative redeemer. Someone might have already preached on it before. Spencer might have done it a couple weeks ago. A kinsman or a relative redeemer is nothing more than a man who would take the responsibility left by a guy in the family who died. This is a big, easy way of explaining it. Sometimes if a dude died, the closest male relative would take ownership and liability of the land, the business, and yes, his wives. Most often to propagate the name, the family name. Now, like I said, we're going to talk about that more next week. But what I want you to catch in this is that this was a big, big risk. Here she is, a Moabite, proposing to a Jew. You don't do that. You don't do that in this culture. Here she is, a woman that is broken in half by poverty, proposing to a wealthy landowner. You don't do that. You have a younger woman proposing to an older statesman. You don't do that either. These are things you don't do. She was doing it in the dead of night. Dressed in a way that looked a little provocative. Dressed in a way that could have been misread or dangerous to her. Listen, have any of you ever taken a risk that looks, from the outside looking in, very senseless? Very stupid. Very dumb. But you know God has called you to do it. You know that it's proper. It's part of God's pleasure that you would make that decision. Have any of you ever done anything like that? Any of you ever find yourself doing something to honor God or maybe even God's people, but find people around you sneering at it? Mocking at it? Making fun of you? Any of you ever talk yourself out of making a good decision? Because of what was at risk. Because what you could lose. 
Any of you do a good job of reasoning yourself away from something like that? That's got to be going on here, and you can't miss that. The music is climaxing. It's getting louder. The camera pans over to Boaz's face. He's only been awake for 60 seconds, if even that. This all happened really fast. And he says this, verse 10. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. First thing he does is pray a prayer of blessing over her. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all of my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Boaz simply knows this. He knows that she could have done better. Knows that she could have done better. She doesn't have to be with her mom, her mother-in-law. She doesn't have to be at the feet of an old bachelor woman. This doesn't have to work this way. She could have gone after younger men, better looking men, wealthier men. Men that spoke her language. She could have done that. Guys, we know when we're out of our league with our ladies, don't we? Don't we know that? I do. I had to hurry up and marry Paula before she found out I had gas and was going to lose my hair before she met all my friends, before she met all my family. (laughs) I had to close that deal. She wasn't obligated to do this. She wanted to. He saw it as a kindness to her. Or to him. He he basically says, man, listen, you want me? Done. I don't even have to pray about it. (laughs) I've been awake 20 seconds and I know a good deal when I see one. For sure, this sounds like a good idea to me. It's a kindness to him. Some of you husbands know what I'm talking about. It's a kindness. And then he does something really cool right here. He encourages her. She probably needed some encouragement right then because it looked real sketchy. A little overly sensual what she was doing. What she was doing is something that prostitutes would do. Why would prostitutes go to a threshing floor? Guys who've been drinking, money in their pocket. It didn't look right. It it could have been misread a million different ways. What if she had gone to the wrong set of feet? What if someone had seen her going to his feet? He was aware of what she was putting herself through to do this. And so the first thing he does is encourage her and say, Hey, listen, I know your reputation. It is one of worth and value and of nobility. Your name has already gone about throughout the town. And that's how I see you as well. That's what he's communicating to her as a worthy woman. Now, interesting, this is just a... Something for free. In the Jewish Bible, books are arranged a little differently than they are in our Bible. The book of Ruth in the Jewish Bible falls after Proverbs 31 and before the Song of Solomon. The book of Ruth falls after a book describing a virtuous, worthy woman. And it falls right before a book describing a bride who would aggressively pursue her groom. I'm just saying, it's interesting to me. So if we pause the story there, and it does get better next week, what can we learn from this? What can we learn from this passage? Because it seems really odd, doesn't it? It seems seems like there's no point of applicability for our lives, just at face value. I will say that what I see as we zoom way out, and I'm zooming out, is that God providentially rules over the lives of His people. He rules over the lives of His people. Yet... His people make their own decisions. 
And they both happen at the same time. Think about it. God controls, he weaves, he has reign over the lives of his people. All the while, his people are making worthy, significant, valuable decisions that will have results and repercussions and drastic implications for their own life and for the lives around them. So you see, there's this concept called God's sovereignty. And if you've been here for any length of time at all, we preach on this all the time because we do believe here that God is sovereign. But God being sovereign means that He is all-powerful. And He controls all things, all people, all events. He rules all and He reigns over all. And He directs things and people and events according to His own brilliance, His own wisdom, and His own counsel and plan. And He does it for the good of His people and for His own glory. That's God's sovereignty. And we see it all the way through the Bible. Just a couple quick passages, just to undergird the statement I just said, is Daniel 4. And he says, And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. It means he does what he wants. He does what he wants here on earth. And no one can say or stay his hand and say to him, What have you done? And then the common one you hear all the time in Psalm 115, Our God is in the heavens and he does what he pleases. That's true. God is sovereign, but you're making decisions, aren't you? We make decisions. Real ones. Significant ones. With big effect to it. And the common argument here is, is Luke, if God is sovereign, then that means I don't have any free will. If God is controlling and navigating and maneuvering everything, that means I don't have any free will. The truth is, is you don't have free will. There's no such thing as free will. This is going to come as a shock to some of you. The Bible doesn't teach free will. Free will would insinuate that you can make a judgment or a decision in a moral vacuum and nothing can drive that. Nothing can push. Nothing can influence the decisions you make. But all the decisions we make are influenced. All of them. We don't make any decisions in a vacuum, especially a moral vacuum. Free will is something that we have concocted, especially in the Western world. No one has free will. It doesn't even exist. This is how John Piper says it. He says, we are enslaved to what we do. We are enslaved to do what we want and what we esteem and most desirable in any given moment of decision. We are enslaved to do what we want to do most. Hey, you're here this morning because you want to be here. Think about how this works. Maybe you don't want to be here. Maybe you're here and you don't really want to be here. The point is, is no one made you get in the car. You could have at any moment decided not to come. Well, Luke, I didn't want to come and I didn't even want to get in the car, but so-and-so was waiting for me up there and I just kind of had to come to save face. Okay, but that influenced your decision. You still made the decision. You make important, valuable, significant decisions. That's what's going on. You weren't a puppet. Yet, God rules and reigns over all of your life. And He's the one driving and pushing and creating and weaving and writing and authoring this brilliant story. He is the one doing it. It's not a coincidence you're here. Because there is no such thing. A sovereign God leaves no room for coincidence or chance. No room. There's no hint in this story that these women, Ruth and Naomi... Boaz. There's no hint in this story that they had the dignity of their decisions removed. They made real important decisions, yet God was actually designing things all around them, things that they weren't even aware of. They don't even know that God is creating the bloodline of Jesus Christ Himself through Ruth. That's going to happen through her. That bloodline passes right through her. She could have never known that. Ruth could have never known that she's going to be King David's great-grandmother. King David who from his bloodline will come an even greater king. 
They could have never known what God was doing in the big picture. Never. Ruth, Naomi, Boaz, they could have never known that you and I would be here on August 4th in 2013 looking at this text and seeing Jesus Christ in it. They could have never known that. God was in control. He was active. But guess what? Naomi was too. And Ruth was active too. And Boaz was active too. And they made calculated decisions. And God makes calculated decisions. So who's controlling things here, Luke? Is God controlling things or are they controlling things? Yes. God is controlling things. And yet we're making valuable and significant decisions. Why does this matter? Because this gets get real stuffy theologically, real out there. So we're going to zoom in a little bit. Have any of you ever made a decision? This is rhetorical, all of you have. And any of you have ever made a decision where it was so gray and foggy and you couldn't see one way or the other and you pray all the prayers, God, open the doors, shut the windows, give me a sign, I'll throw a fleece out there, I'll fast. We do all the stuff we do and you cannot see what God is doing. You don't know what's opening up over here. You can't have any clarity. All of your friends are giving you weird advice in different directions. You just don't know what to do. Big risk involved that could affect you for the rest of your life, you think, in your head, and you just don't know what to do. Any of you ever been in a place like that? Yeah, a lot of heads nodding. Me too. This is what we can take from this story. God is at work in that fog when you're in the weeds and you can't see what you're doing. God is at work. He's not intimidated by the fact that you don't know what to do. He's not insecure about the fact that you're having a hard time seeing with good clarity what direction you're supposed to go. It doesn't bother him one bit. Here's something for you. God even uses wrong choices for our good and for His glory. Even wrong choices, even stupid moves. Proof? Moving from Bethlehem to Moab. Stupid. It's a stupid move. Shouldn't have done it. Marrying a Moabite. That was stupid. Shouldn't have done it. Gleaning as a young woman in a field of a guy you don't know is pretty stupid. This whole covert operation thing that she did, stupid. Not wise. I would never advise. If I was there with Naomi telling her all that, I'd be like, no, no, bad advice. I'm sure there's a book on this somewhere. We need to go get an elder and get the, this is bad advice. Don't do that. Don't take a shower and put perfume on. Don't do any of that. You're fine. It looks bad, doesn't it? It looks bad. But God used these decisions. He designed these decisions in such a way that His people will be blessed, and we are through the person of Jesus Christ, and that He would be glorified. He used them all. And He's done this all over the Bible. This is why if you read Acts, you'll see Peter using a very specific language when he's talking to people. This is what Peter sounds like. You murder Jesus. The blood is on your hands. You murdered him. You hung a king on a cross and he bled out and became a corpse. And the blood is on your hands. You're murderers. That's what's behind his language. But Isaiah says it was God who crushed Jesus on the cross. Well, who did it? Yes. God did it and we did it. We made valuable decisions. Those men and women back then made valuable, high-capacity decisions to do something very drastic God's people were blessed and God was glorified. This is what this should help you understand. It should keep you from despair. Hopefully, because some of you are there, because we can trust God with our bad, stupid moves and we can move forward. 
And some of you need to hear that. Anyone here make a real bad decision? (laughs) And you're afraid it might define you for the rest of your life? You're afraid that thing might be the thing that makes you? That casts you in bronze forever? Any of that occur in your minds? This is to keep us from being in total despair and despondency. I mean, God is so good in giving us stories like this. We make bad moves, we trust God, and we move forward. The problem is, is some of you simply cannot do that. Some of you simply are having a really difficult time doing that, moving forward. You can't trust God. You don't see Him as a big sovereign God in control. You don't see that. You don't see anything but your mistakes. You don't see anything but your problems. You can't see around it, almost as if God cannot fix it. You feel like you can't even approach God. So you keep flogging yourself until you think Jesus likes you more. Listen, your problems, your big fat problems, your mistakes, your gambles gone wrong, they've become bigger than God to you. They become much bigger than even God. And you forgot that God is this brilliant author that takes these tragedies and these crises and He builds something very beautiful out of it. Is that not what the Gospel is? The Gospel is the fact that we took the most wretched mistake that mankind could ever make, which is hanging a Savior, a Redeemer, a King, a Creator on a cross. Doing something drastic like that was a mistake. And the blood is on our hands. But what does God do with that? With our failed decisions and our bad moves. He creates salvation. He creates justification. He adopts you into family. He gathers the church around a king. God is the hero. He's glorified. And we benefit from it. The big point I see in this, and this is the big point maybe some of you can take home. Improper risk, because some of you are risk takers and some of you need to be taking some risks now. Improper risk is risk that's going to be founded and focused on you. Whenever you don't handle risk in making big decisions well, it's because you're either trying to elevate yourself or you're trying to protect yourself. That's what we do when we get really close to risky things or big decisions. We try to protect and insulate ourselves or we try to elevate ourselves and capitalize on that. That's what we do. Some of us need to stop taking needless risks and start being more careful with our decisions because you might be in a prideful place of trying to create your own glory. But most of us, that's just a small percentage. I would say the most, the vast majority of us, we don't take enough risks. And we put off the big decisions because we try to insulate and protect ourselves. We try to secure our position. We try to cushion our position. Proper risk taking is not where you're trying to be preserved, but where you're elevating God because Jesus has come to preserve you. You're not elevating yourself in your own control. You're elevating God. The reason we do this, folks, real quickly, the reason we try to protect ourselves is very simple. We're not very satisfied and anchored down in the fact that we're already safe. You're already safe. Do you realize that in Jesus Christ you can be no safer than you are right now? No safer. You know, sometimes when I hold my my daughter, Julesy, she's four now. 
like she's got a thing with dogs and it doesn't matter what species or I mean if it's a dog and has a tail it might as well be the hound of hell to her she will not have anything to do with it or touch it or come near it and so when I get around the little yippy dogs they yip 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 there's just one of them that thing can't even jump up and touch my knee and I'm holding her I'm a 185 pound man that's holding this girl and still she pulls tighter and she pulls the legs up really high as if that thing's going to jump six times its height and grab her and eat her and consume her whole you know that's what she's thinking in her head she is not convinced that she is safe enough with me so what does she do she recoils and draws in to provide her own safety to make herself more safe and that is effectively what we do when we avoid big heavy weighty decisions for God's glory and when we avoid those risky things that God has called us to do we do the same thing God you've made me safe but not safe enough and i got to create that myself. So I'm going to avoid risk. I'm going to avoid the big, heavy decisions. The ones that the world sneers at. I'm going to avoid them. It becomes about, what about me? What about me? Some of, listen, some of you are making decisions right now in your life. You haven't even considered God's glory and His testimony. You haven't even thought about it. You're so busy forecasting and predicting what could go wrong. You haven't even considered where God is in the whole thing. You haven't even thought about it. And for some of you, and I know how this is because I'm one of you, it can get so bad that even when all the variables are spelled out for you, and there is no fog, and you can see clearly, and you know exactly what to do, you still won't do it. Because of the cost that comes with it. Because of the heavy cost. Speaking with a guy the other day, a good friend of mine, and he brought up a situation that he was wrestling with. And it was with a brother, another brother in the Lord, who's in open rebellion and taking people down with him, creating this huge, massive problem. And I'm telling you from the outside looking in, I didn't even need to hear 10% of that before I knew what he needed to do. And he's talking and he's talking and he's talking. I had to interrupt him and say, bro, it's obvious what you need to do. It might seem a little risky, but you've got to jump in. and, And I gave him the prescription of what I felt like he needed to do. And it's almost like he's trying to talk himself out of it, like waiting for God to throw a variable in, making it easy for him to not have to do it. And some of you are like my friend. Some of you are like my friend that do that. You know what to do, but you keep waiting for a reason to not do what God is showing you to do and calling you to do. You know, much later in this story, Jesus would come from this same bloodline. Jesus would come making bold decisions, right? Elevating his father, risking his life, and then giving his life. He would do this. And when he did this, he robbed you of the right to center your decisions on yourself. He robbed that right of you. He took it from you. Not only do you not have the right to center all your decisions on yourself, you don't even have the need to center all your decisions on yourself. You shouldn't have the need to do that. You can't get safer than you already are, and you don't need the glory in your life because Jesus Christ is glorious enough. He's glorious enough. All the things you think you need, you don't need. They've already been given to you. Already been given to you. So what? So what if your big move fails? So what if your risky gamble falls through? So what? Are you all of a sudden not a Christian? Are you less safe now? Is God less glorious now? Some of you, some of us, some of me, are fearful of making really big decisions. 
Because you know that you know that you know that you know that you'll fail. You know that you're going to fail. And to be honest with you, you just want the stress of the decision to go away. You know what I'm talking about? Just even the fact that there is a decision, you want even that to go away. Just go away. So you slip towards preserving yourself. Try to create, manufacture your own peaceful situation by avoiding a very hard choice, a very hard decision. The gospel, as we've already talked about so far, is that not only did Jesus not avoid hard decisions, but he took the need away from you and the right away from you to be so concerned for your safety that you're doing things against the will of God. Some of you need to take more risks. Some of you need to be more risky, responsibly risky with your life for God's glory. And the thing that keeps trying to talk you out of it, the thing that the, the need to preserve, the need to comfort yourself, all that's already been provided for. It's already been provided for. That's how good the gospel really is. He meets the deep needs. The gospel meets the deep needs that you really, really have. Some of you are on the backside of making some really dumb decisions. Some real bad moves. Right? Even as I talk about the long list of things that they have done wrong, you're in your mind, you're thinking, man, that doesn't even compare to the list I have, Luke. You only mentioned like five or six things. I got like 82 things that I've done wrong. In fact, I can't get anything right. And here I am in the puddle of my own result, <laughs> and I don't know what to do. Let, be encouraged in this as you look at your story. Be encouraged that God is at work, even in your mistakes. That He's a comforter even in your mistakes. You can't get to be more of a mistake than the person that is responsible, and you are. Now when I say this, hear me clearly. Hear me clearly. You were not there when Jesus was hung on the cross, but the blood is on your hands because it was your sins that put Him on the cross. It was our sins. It was my sins that put Him on the cross. The blood is on my hands. Of all the mistakes I've made in life, it's not going to get bigger than that. That's the encouragement. I don't care what your mistake is. It's not bigger than hanging a king on a cross. And God used it to glorify Himself and to bless His people. That is the story of the gospel for us. You should be encouraged. You need to be encouraged. You should spend some time encouraging yourself over that. Listen, folks, there is life for you. There is life for you. Some of you don't know Jesus, and I'm finishing with this. It seems to go ahead and come on up. I'm going to finish with this. There is, for those of you who struggle with the idea of Jesus, maybe you struggle with the idea of church, maybe you struggle with the idea of stuff like this, or some of the words I've mentioned today, what you need to know as we go into worship is that Jesus died for a very real sin. Yes, the blood is on your hands. Yes, that's true. And you did something drastic to put Him up on the cross. But, this is all part of God's plan to preserve you. It was God, it says in Isaiah 53, who crushed Him. He was crushed by God. His punishment that was received by God was very real. And He wasn't punished for being Jesus, friend. He was punished for being you on that cross. It was a very real trait. It was a substitution made out. Your very unrighteous life for His very righteous life. It's a very real trait and it's very accessible to you. What it requires, however, is death to yourself. Not just death to your sinful life, but it requires death to your attempts to clean yourself, which is also sin, which is also what we do, especially in the Deep South. We try to clean ourselves. We try to make ourselves look good enough for Jesus to love. And that itself, it will take you straight to hell. It is a sin. 
You have to repent from all of that. The, the attempt to live a self-righteous life and to be God yourself. And whenever you call Christ King, when that real thing happens, when that real thing happens, and you can see on the other side of the bad decisions, the grace that comes where God is glorified and you're blessed. You can actually tangibly see that. You can watch it take root in your life.